When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the fall of 1457, in the city of Savigny, France, an accused murderer was dragged before a court in chains. The people in the audience were angry. They hissed curses at the accused and shook their fists. The judge raised his voice and demanded they all be quiet. They were here to deliberate the most heinous of crimes, the death of a five-year-old child, and he wouldn't allow any interruptions in these proceedings. The accused was herself a mother, and it wasn't bad enough that she was accused of the savage killing of a child, but her own children had also been implicated in the crime as well. The two village prosecutors stood up and over the course of the morning carefully laid out their case how the accused willfully murdered the boy. The defense tried his best to lay out a case for his client's innocence, but there was only so much he could do. The accused had been captured, still covered in the child's blood after all. To make matters worse, he couldn't even call his client to the witness stand to tell her side of the story. And there's a pretty good reason for that. You see, his client was a pig. Now, I'm not trying to insult anyone here. I mean, it was a literal, honest-to-goodness sow. Animal trials were something that occurred fairly frequently throughout the Middle Ages. Pigs, dogs, cats, cows, rats, even flies were all put on trial for crimes against man. In this particular trial from 1457, the accused pig was found guilty in the child's death, whereas her litter was found innocent of the crime. In accordance with the law at the time, the judge sentenced the mother pig to death by hanging. I know things like this sound pretty bizarre by today's standards. You can find several examples throughout history of other similar trials. In one disturbing case from the 14th century, a starving pig broke loose from its pen and ate the face off an infant in its cradle. The pig was hauled before the court, and after it was sentenced to death, they dressed it up in a human waistcoat and breeches before hanging it from the gallows. Historians have come up with several explanations why these animal trials would have been carried out. Between the years 824 and 1845, at least 144 prosecutions had taken place of members of the animal kingdom, resulting in either their execution or their excommunication from the church. Some speculate that in a deeply religious society, this was a way of maintaining the natural order between man and beast in the eyes of God. It's also possible it was a way of absolving the animal's owner of their own gross negligence. In some cases, this would mean prosecuting a quite literal scapegoat, which was a biblical practice in which an actual goat would be granted all the sins of a repentant person and sent out into the wild. Although these explanations go partway to making sense of the animal trials, it still doesn't fully explain why humans went to so much trouble to create a formal process for trying and convicting an animal. It would have been a lot quicker and easier to just summarily execute the animal than actually taking the time and expense to stage a full trial. What this does indicate is that, to some degree, 
People back in the Middle Ages must have deemed animals worthy of human justice because they believed them to have sufficient free will to make decisions for themselves. The idea that animals could make very human decisions between right and wrong may have partially come from the many farmers who cared for and observed domestic animals on a daily basis. But there's another school of thought that says superstition may have played a hand in some of these animal trials as well. You see, back in the Middle Ages, there was still a widespread belief that not all animals were, in fact, animals at all. A lot of people believed in the power of witchcraft and in curses. And as a result, many humans were put on trial for possessing the ability to transform into animals. In the Middle Ages, it was widely believed that witches would often travel in the company of their familiars, creatures that were either demons or human beings disguised as animals. I've spoken in previous episodes about the paranoia that went into the medieval witch trials, which was largely born out of a combination of superstition and a male-run society intent on keeping women in their place. But besides witches, there was another supernatural creature that people were often accused of being. A creature that came out of a deep-seated fear of what people saw as the number one predator in the wild, the wolf. Now, of course, modern naturalists will tell you that wolves are shy creatures who will go out of their way to avoid humans and that you have nothing to fear from them. But right or wrong, throughout history, wolves were singled out as the most terrifying beast you could encounter in the forest. This led to the belief that one of the worst things that could happen to you would be for you to be cursed to transform into one of these creatures. For just as long as people were being put on trial for being witches, so too were we putting them on trial for being werewolves. I'm Nate Hale, and my what big teeth you have, Grandma. And this is The Conspirators. There's a long-standing belief that people tend to act differently on the night of a full moon. So the story goes that on the night of a full moon... The number of police calls goes up, as does the number of people who end up getting committed to psychiatric institutions for wild, uncontrollable behavior. Several scientific studies have been conducted to see if the numbers actually bear this belief out, and whereas the statistics show that there isn't any noticeable increase in such incidents, there are still plenty of cops and mental health professionals who will tell you otherwise. In fact, it's from the Latin word for moon, luna, where we derive the word lunatic. Although over time the phases of the moon would become inextricably intertwined with the legend of the werewolf, it wasn't always the case. Back in our earliest recorded history, the ability to change into a wolf was typically caused by some other magical means, oftentimes through the application of some magical ointment or by wearing an enchanted item. In fact, in some of the earliest known stories, becoming a werewolf was not even thought of as a curse. Archaeologists throughout Europe have found human remains wearing wolf pelts or animal teeth alongside other human remains that show signs of cannibalism. The implication there seems to be that one person believed they could transform into a wolf and then hunted and devoured another human being. Back then it was believed that eating human flesh would have been what caused you to change into a wolf in the first place. And abstaining from cannibalism would have been the key to changing back. In a prehistoric hunter-gatherer society... Humans would have been surrounded by other creatures that were larger, more vicious, with claws and sharper teeth. Is it any wonder, then, that some of these people would have wanted to take on the abilities of the vicious predators they saw all around them? 
Although legends exist of were-tigers and were-bears and other half-man, half-animal changelings, it's the werewolf legend that seems to recur most often throughout history. Even today, the latest edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders contains a definition of clinical lycanthropy. This disorder is described as a delusion in which the patient believes he or she can transform into any animal. And of all the creatures people believe they can turn into, the werewolf is at the top of the list. It's easy to see why. Popular culture has inundated us with werewolf stories. Books, comics, video games, TV shows. And of course, lots and lots of movies have all been made about werewolves. It's Hollywood that has provided us with a lot of the lore surrounding the creatures. Take the silver bullet, for example. The idea that the only way to kill a werewolf is by using a silver bullet is something screenwriters lifted from ancient legends about witches that they applied to werewolves. Prior to the Universal Studios Wolfman movies of the 1930s, it was widely believed you could kill a werewolf by pretty much anything that would kill a normal wolf. You can find werewolf legends all over the world. In other cultures, you'll find many different terms to describe more or less the same sort of wolfish creature. The ancient Norse people used the term Varger. The Romanians spoke of the Varkalak, whereas the French would refer to such creatures as the Lugaru. The source of the term werewolf itself is a little trickier to pin down. Some historians say it stems from an Anglo-Saxon word, weard, which means outlaw or scoundrel. While still others say the term comes from the low Dutch word ver, meaning war. Whatever the source of the term, there's just something about the werewolf that has elevated itself to the head of the pack, so to speak, of legendary monsters. Wolves have been considered a threat to humans throughout our evolutionary history. Back in prehistoric times, wolves would have been among our chief competition when it came to looking for food. And by the time we started farming, wolves would have been the number one threat to our livestock. Although wolves and humans would have been enemies for thousands of years, it's believed that around 10,000 years ago, humans actually began allowing wolves into their camps, breeding them, domesticating them, and training them to hunt with them. Eventually, those animals would become the domestic dogs we know and love today. But even though some members of the canine species were destined to become man's best friend, wolves still continued to be hunted out in the wild. By 1684, the last wolves in Britain had been driven to extinction. Within another 80 years or so, they were eliminated from Ireland as well. The ancient Greeks had a legend of a king named Lycaon, who ended up getting on the bad side of the god Zeus, which was something you really didn't want to do. Zeus promptly destroyed the man's palace, killed all his sons with lightning, and cursed him to spend the rest of his life in the body of a wolf. The name Lycaon would become the source of the word Lycos, which meant wolf, and would eventually be coupled with the word for humans, anthropos, which from there got cobbled together into the term lycanthropy. Not to be outdone by the Greeks, the Romans had plenty of werewolf legends as well. Some of the earliest known writings about a man changing into a wolf can be found in the Roman poet Virgil's Ecologue from about 2,000 years ago. In that story, he tells of a man named Morris who could transform himself into a wolf using a magic potion. Because they were thought of as fearsome creatures that hunted in packs, the Roman infantry organized and disciplined themselves in ways that reflected wolves. According to the historian Polybius, Roman soldiers who displayed conspicuous bravery in battle were allowed to wear wolf skins while cowards were torn to pieces by their peers. 
By the year 445, Rome was under constant siege by barbarian hordes. This caused such a massive threat to the Roman Empire that they were forced to abandon their kingdom in Britannia and return to defend their homeland. They left behind a number of Germanic mercenaries that had fought alongside them. Those same mercenaries brought their wives and children, along with a lot of their kinfolk, to live in this Angle land, as it was known then, or as we know it better today, England. But even after the Romans were gone from England, a lot of their legends remained behind and continued to be passed around from person to person. These stories would get blended with other stories told by the Germanic tribes flooding the region and would eventually spawn the modern legends of the werewolf. Things really heated up for the werewolf legend over the following century, when Christianity spread throughout the land and lycanthropy began to be thought of as a religious curse. One story out of ancient Ireland tells of a traveling bishop who came to the town of Ossory preaching the gospel. The bishop was roundly mocked by all the locals for his faith. Angry and insulted, the bishop cursed the townspeople to become wolves once every seven years. In some versions of that story, the angry bishop is a man named St. Natalus, although in others, it's a name we're much more familiar with today, St. Patrick. The 1487 book, The Malleus Maleficarum, which for centuries became the official treatise on how to deal with witches, also contained passages on how to identify and punish werewolves. By that point, people began looking on their own neighbors with suspicion. When a violent death occurred in a village, or someone's sheep were slaughtered in the night, it wasn't always wild animals that were thought to be to blame. But rather, it might be someone living among them who had the devil's curse upon them. In the late 16th century, England's King James would go on to write his own textbook on how to deal with witches called Demonology, in which he also added in sections on how to formally identify and deal with werewolves. Something else the king did during this time was to make it possible to actually put someone on trial in criminal courts for the crimes of witchcraft or for being a werewolf. Throughout the Middle Ages, tens of thousands of people would be put on trial for being werewolves. It's possible that at least in some cases, some of the people accused of being werewolves were actually suffering from some real medical conditions. There's one rare condition called hypertrichosis, which causes excessive hair growth all over a person's body. Although this doesn't affect their behavior at all. Some historians have pointed to a genetic condition called porphyria as being a cause for both the werewolf legend and for vampires as well. In this disease, the patient becomes overly sensitive to light. Their eyes become sunken, and their gums recede, making their teeth look like fangs. But porphyria is an extremely rare condition and can't possibly account for all the many people who are accused of being werewolves. In 1603, something horrible began happening to the children who lived in the southwestern part of France. Children began disappearing from farms and roads without a trace. Although wolf attacks were common back in those days, there was something about these particular incidents that began to make people whisper that something supernatural was to blame. One day, a 13-year-old girl named Marguerite Poyer was attending to livestock in the fields when an enormous wolf charged out of the woods at her. The wolf attacked, but she was able to drive him away by beating him with an iron rod she carried with her for protection. Marguerite reported the attack to authorities along with another story of a 14-year-old boy named Jean Grenier, who had once bragged to her that he could transform into a wolf. The authorities questioned the boy, and he readily confessed that it had been he who had attacked Marguerite, as well as all the other children whom he had taken and eaten. He was immediately arrested and brought to trial. 
He admitted on the witness stand that he had once met the devil in the forest who had given him a wolf skin and an ointment that allowed him to transform into a wolf. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. He roamed the forest for three years, killing and devouring children. At least in this case, logic seemed to win out over superstition. All the boys' claims of witchcraft, the devil, and lycanthropy were ignored by the judge. The judge did accept the testimony of two doctors who claimed the boy was suffering from mental delusions that made him believe he was a werewolf. Taking their testimony into consideration along with the boy's age, Jean Grenier was sentenced to live for the remainder of his life in a monastery in Bordeaux. But Jean Grenier's story wasn't the only one like it. The late 16th and early 17th centuries unleashed a massive wave of people accused of lycanthropy. One story tells of the Grand Duke of Muscovy, who had a man brought before him on charges of being a werewolf. He ordered the man demonstrate his abilities, and at least according to the legend, the man actually dropped to all fours and transformed into a wolf right there in the court. In yet another story in 1598, a man named Jacques Rollet became known as the Werewolf of Cod, after being tried for killing and eating a 15-year-old boy. He was captured in the woods by townspeople who discovered him half-naked and still covered in gobbets of the boy's flesh. At his trial, Rollet confessed to murdering several people, and at first was given the death penalty. Although later he was judged mentally incompetent and was instead sent to the madhouse for the absurdly short period of two years. History doesn't say what happened to him after he got out. It's estimated that in France alone, as many as 30,000 people were executed by being burned at the stake or hung for the crime of lycanthropy. But France wasn't the only country experiencing werewolf mania. In 1582, the town of Bedburg, Germany, was caught in the middle of a brewing civil war between the Catholics and the Protestants. Between that and the frequent outbreaks of the bubonic plague, violence and death was a daily fact of life. But things went from bad to worse when a monster began terrorizing the town. It all started when local farmers began finding dead cattle in the fields. Over a period of several weeks, something began attacking the cows that were left unguarded in the pastures around town. Something that had the ability to rip these animals to pieces. The natural assumption was that a pack of wolves had moved into the area. But after a few weeks... Things took a turn for the worse when young women and small children began disappearing from the main roads around town as well. In most cases, their bodies were never found, and on the rare occasions when human remains were discovered, they were just scattered pieces that showed signs of some vicious animal attack. One story goes that a pair of young men and a woman were traveling just outside the city when they heard a voice call out to them from the woods alongside the main road. 
One of the men went into the forest to investigate, only he never came back. Then the other man went into the woods after him, only he didn't return either. The woman realized something bad had just happened to her two companions and began running back in the direction of town, only she never made it. Something rushed out of the forest after her and dragged her body away. Although later on some of the villagers did find some dismembered limbs from both men, they never found anything of the woman. Whatever this creature was, it next tried to snatch a young girl from a field where she was out tending her cattle. But the creature failed to kill the girl when it spooked the cattle enough to send them into a minor stampede, driving the beast away before it could finish the job. This was the last straw. In 1589, the villagers gathered together a hunting party who headed out into the woods to track the creature down once and for all. The hunters used scent dogs to track the beast through the woods. The men were certain the creature they chased down in the forest was a wolf. But when the dogs cornered the wolf, the men all claimed it transformed into a man right before their eyes. Not only that, but this was a man they all knew very well. He was a wealthy and respected farmer named Peter Stube, although you'll sometimes find his name listed in the historical record as Stump. Stube would go on to confess to all the deaths that had occurred over the past few years. His story will sound a little familiar as well, since it bears a striking resemblance to that of the story of Jean Grenier. Stoop claimed that at the age of 12 he made a pact with the devil, and that Satan had provided him with a magical belt of wolf skin that allowed him to transform into the beast. When they asked where the magical belt had gone, Stoop told the men he had taken it off and dropped it in the woods. Searchers were never able to find it. Stube delighted in confessing that he had gotten away with slaughtering all those many people and animals right under the town's noses. He said he'd been doing it for years, unbeknownst to everyone, and that he took great pleasure in all the carnage. A pamphlet that was written about Stube's many crimes added that on top of being a murderer, he was also guilty of committing incest with his own daughter and sister, and they even bore children by him. Peter Stube was tried and convicted of being a werewolf. His execution took place, by sheer coincidence, on October 31st, 1589, Halloween. He was put to death alongside his daughter and mistress, who were also convicted of complicity in his crimes. The two women were flayed alive and strangled, but Stube's punishment was even more severe. He was strapped to a large wheel where he had the flesh ripped from his body in ten places with red-hot pinchers. Then his limbs were shattered in multiple places with the blunt side of an axe in order to prevent him from later rising from the grave. Then finally he was beheaded, and his body burned to ashes for good measure. Afterwards, authorities mounted his torture wheel on a tall pole topped with the carving of a wolf. On top of that, they placed his severed head. Although historical records exist which corroborate much of the story of Peter Stube, you still need to question how much of it really happened just as described. It seems that in some cases, all these stories of werewolves can get blended together and borrow elements from one another. As I mentioned earlier, the stories of Peter Stube and Jean Grenier both bear some strikingly similar elements. So too can we see parts of these stories repeated in another famous legend of a monstrous wolf terrorizing a rural community. Between 1764 and 1767, a creature that came to be known as the Beast of Gévaudan attacked and killed dozens of people in a remote region of rural France. I did an earlier podcast about it a while back, so I won't recount all the details here. But in the legend of the Beast of Gévaudan, 
It's said that at one point the creature came charging out of the woods and attacking a young girl tending her livestock in a field, only to have the cattle drive away the creature before it could kill her. Which, of course, is practically the same story that's associated with the werewolf of Bedburg. If we dig deeper into the story of Peter Stube, it's possible there may be another version of the story that has nothing to do with werewolves at all. At least according to some historians, there's another reason altogether why the man was so brutally put to death. As I mentioned earlier, Bedburg was at the center of the clash between Protestants and Catholics that was raging at the time. There are some historians that say that rather than being a werewolf, Stube was actually a recent convert to Protestantism, and that he ran afoul of the Lord of Bedburg, a staunch Catholic named Werner, the Count of Salmreiferscheidt Dyke. According to some historians, the werewolf trial was actually a thinly veiled sham that was actually meant as a threat to local Protestants what would happen to them if they didn't return to the Catholic Church. So what we are left with are a few different explanations for what really happened to Peter Stube. In one version of events, everything occurred just as the popular legend describes. The man was a werewolf straight out of a late-night creature feature and preyed upon the innocent people of Bedburg. In another version, he was a victim of religious persecution taken to the extreme. Or perhaps there is yet another explanation, one in which Peter Stube did become a monster, but not one of supernatural origin. Perhaps Peter Stube was a madman whose only demons dwelled within his own twisted mind. By the 19th century, witch and werewolf trials had mostly been relegated to the past. And by the following century, fear of monsters had given way to public fears of some very human murderers. In the modern era, we have traded our collective fear of werewolves for fear of serial killers. The two have a lot in common when you think about it. The basic concept of a serial killer is someone who appears normal on the surface but secretly hides an insatiable urge to kill repeatedly. The news media picked up on this relationship and would occasionally use the term werewolf to describe some very real murderers. As recently as 2012, a Russian serial killer named Mikhail Popkov was given the nickname the werewolf after being arrested for murdering more than 80 people. In the 1940s in Los Angeles, the name the werewolf killer was being used by several newspapers to describe a series of brutal murders of four women that they attempted to link together. Modern true crime historians have cast doubts on whether these four crimes were related or not. But back in 1947, newspaper reporters tried to make a connection between the unsolved murders of Georgette Bauerdorf, Ora Murray, Gertrude Landon, and one more very infamous crime that all bore some similarities. That last crime involved the brutal slaying of a young woman whose body was found severed into two pieces in an empty lot in the Limert Park neighborhood of L.A. The victim's name was Elizabeth Short, or as we know her better today, the Black Dahlia. The Conspiratus is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening and helping to support the show. I wanted to remind you I have a Patreon account. If you want to help us out further, patrons to the show get all sorts of bonuses like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and access to our bonus mini-episodes. By the way, if you'd like to get your hands on some Conspiratus merchandise but don't want to become a patron... We also have a store where you can order a lot of these things for yourself. I'll put a link in the show notes. Something simple you can do to help support the show is by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Every one of your reviews helps boost us in Apple's rankings and spreads the good word about the conspirators. If you're not on Apple, we're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and your favorite podcast app. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>